Late in 1961, the Canadian dollar. In June, 1961, and the Italian lira, in March, 1964. By the autumn of 1964, the swap agreements had come to be the very cornerstone of international monetary cooperation. Indeed, the 500 million American dollars that the Bank of England was finding it necessary to draw on at the very moment the bank's top officers were heading for Basel that November weekend represented part of the swap network. Greatly expanded from its comparatively modest beginnings. As for the Bank for International Settlements, in its capacity as a banking institution it was a relatively minor cog in all this machinery, but in its capacity as a club it had over the years come to play a far from unimportant role. Its monthly board meetings served as a chance for the central bankers to talk in an informal atmosphere, to exchange gossip, views, and hunches such as could not comfortably be indulged in either by mail or over the international telephone circuits. Basel, a medieval Rhenish city that is dominated by the spires of its 12th-century Gothic cathedral and has long been a thriving center of the chemical industry, was originally chosen as the site of the Bank for International Settlements because it was a nodal point for European railways. Now that most international bankers habitually travel by plane, that asset has become a liability, for there is no long-distance air service to Basel, delegates must deplane at Zurich and continue by train or car. On the other hand, Basel has several first-rate restaurants, and it may be that in the view of the central bank delegates this advantage outweighs the travel inconvenience. For central banking, or at least European central banking, has a firmly established association with good living. A governor of the National Bank of Belgium once remarked to a visitor, without a smile, that he considered one of his duties to be that of leaving the institution's wine cellar better than he had found it. A luncheon guest at the Bank of France is generally told apologetically, in the tradition of the bank, we serve only simple fare, but what follows is a repast during which the constant discussion of vintages makes any discussion of banking awkward. If not impossible, and at which the tradition of simplicity is honored, apparently, by the serving of only one wine before the cognac. The table of the Bank of Italy is equally elegant, and its surroundings are enhanced by the priceless Renaissance paintings, acquired as defaulted security on bad loans over the years, that hang on the walls. As for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, alcohol in any form is hardly ever served there, banking is habitually discussed at meals. And the mistress of the kitchen appears almost pathetically grateful whenever one of the officers makes any sort of comment, even a critical one, on the fair. But then Liberty Street isn't Europe. In these democratic times, central banking in Europe is thought of as the last stronghold of the aristocratic banking tradition, in which wit, grace, and culture coexist easily with commercial astuteness, and even ruthlessness. The European counterparts of the security guards on Liberty Street are apt to be attendants in morning coats. Until less than a generation ago, formality of address between central bankers was the rule. Some think that the first to break it were the British, during the Second World War, when, it is alleged, a secret order went out that British government and military authorities were to address their American counterparts by their first names. In any event, first names are frequently exchanged between European and American central bankers now, and one reason for this, unquestionably, is the post-war rise in influence of the dollar. Another reason is that, in the emerging era of cooperation, the central bankers see more of each other than they used to, not just in Basel but in Washington, Paris, and Brussels. At regular meetings of perhaps half a dozen special banking committees of various international organizations. The same handful of top bankers parades so regularly through the hotel lobbies of those cities that one of them thinks they must give the impression of being hundreds strong. Like the spear carriers who cross the stage again and again in the triumphal scene of Aida, and language, like the manner of its use, has tended to follow economic power. European central bankers have always used French in talking with each other. But during the long period in which the pound was the world's leading currency English came to be the first language of central banking at large. And under the rule of the dollar it continues to be. It is spoken fluently and willingly by all the top officers of every central bank except the Bank of France, and even the Bank of France officers are forced to keep translators at hand. In consideration of the seeming intractable inability or unwillingness of most Britons and Americans to become competent in any language but their own. Lord Cromer, flouting tradition speaks French with complete authority. At Basel, good food and convenience come before splendor, many of the delegates favor an outwardly humble restaurant in the main railroad station. And the Bank for International Settlements itself is modestly situated between a tea shop and a hairdressing establishment. On that November weekend in 1964, Vice President Coombs was the only representative of the Federal Reserve System on hand, and, indeed, 
He was to be the key banking representative of the United States through the early and middle phases of the crisis that was then mounting. In an abstracted way, Coombs ate and drank heartily with the others, true to his institution's traditions, he is less than a gourmet, but his real interest was in getting the sense of the meeting and the private feelings of its participants. He was the perfect man for this task, inasmuch as he has the unquestioning trust and respect of all his foreign colleagues. The other leading central bankers habitually call him by his first name, less, it seems, in deference to changed custom than out of deep affection and admiration. They also use it in speaking of him among themselves. The name Charles Coombs is a word to conjure within central banking circles. Charles Coombs, they will tell you, is the kind of New Englander who, although his clipped speech and dry manner make him seem a bit cool and detached, is really warm and intuitive. Charles Coombs, although a Harvard graduate, is the kind of unpretentious gray-haired man with half-rimmed spectacles and a precise manner whom you might easily take for a standard American small-town bank president. Rather than a master of one of the world's most complex skills, it is generally conceded that if any one man was the genius behind the swap network, the man was the New England swapper Charles Coombs. At Basel, there was, as usual, a series of formal sessions, each with its agenda, but there was also, as usual, much informal palaver in rump sessions held in hotel rooms and offices and at a formal Sunday night dinner at which there was no agenda but instead a free discussion of what Coombs has since referred to as the hottest topic of the moment. There could be no question about what that was, it was the condition of the pound, and, indeed, Coombs had heard little discussion of anything else all weekend. It was clear to me from what I heard that confidence in Sterling was deteriorating. He has said. Two questions were on most of the bankers' minds. One was whether the Bank of England proposed to take some of the pressure off the pound by raising its lending rate. Bank of England men were present, but getting an answer was not a simple matter of asking them their intentions, even if they had been willing to say, they would not have been able to. Because the Bank of England is not empowered to change its rate without the approval, which in practice often comes closer to meaning the instruction, of the British government. And elected governments have a natural dislike for measures that make money tight. The other question was whether Britain had enough golden dollars to throw into the breach if the speculative assault should continue. Apart from what was left of the billion dollars from the expanded swap network and what remained of its drawing rights on the International Monetary Fund, Britain had only its official reserves. Which had dropped in the previous week to something under two and a half billion dollars, their lowest point in several years. Worse than that was the frightful rate at which the reserves were dwindling away, on a single bad day during the previous week. According to the guesses of experts, they had dropped by $87 million. A month of days like that and they would be gone. Even so, Coombs has said, nobody at Basel that weekend dreamed that the pressure on Sterling could become as intense as it actually did become later in the month. He returned to New York worried but resolute. It was not to New York, however, that the main scene of the battle for Sterling shifted after the Basel meeting, it was to London. The big immediate question was whether or not Britain would raise its bank rate that week and the day the answer would be known was Thursday November 12th. In the matter of the bank rate, as in so many other things, the British customarily follow a ritual. If there is to be a change, at noon on Thursday, then and then only, a sign appears in the ground floor lobby of the Bank of England announcing the new rate, and, simultaneously, a functionary called the government broker. Decked out in a pink coat and top hat, hurries down Throgmorton Street to the London Stock Exchange and ceremonially announces the new rate from a rostrum. Noon on Thursday the 12th passed with no change, evidently the Labour government was having as much trouble deciding on a bank rate rise after the election as the Conservatives had had before. The speculators, wherever they were, reacted to such pusillanimity as one man. On Friday the 13th, the pound, which had been moderately buoyant all week precisely because speculators had been anticipating a bank rate rise, underwent a fearful battering, which sent it down to a closing price. Of $2.7829 barely more than a quarter of a cent above the official minimum, and the Bank of England, intervening frequently to hold it even at that level, lost $28 million more from its reserves. Next day, the financial commentator of the London Times, under the byline our city editor, let himself go. The pound, he wrote, is not looking as firm as might be hoped. The following week saw the pattern repeated, but in exaggerated form. On Monday, Prime Minister Wilson, taking a leaf out of Winston Churchill's book, tried rhetoric as a weapon. Speaking at a pomp and circumstance banquet at the Guildhall in the City of London before an audience that included, among many other dignitaries, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Lord Chancellor, the Lord President of the Council, the Lord Privy Seal, the Lord Mayor of London, and their wives, 
Wilson ringingly proclaimed not only our faith but our determination to keep Sterling strong and to see it riding high. And asserted that the government would not hesitate to take whatever steps might become necessary to accomplish this purpose, while elaborately avoiding the dread word devaluation. Just as all other British officials had avoided it all summer, Wilson sought to make it unmistakable that the government now considered such a move out of the question. To emphasize this point, he included a warning to speculators, if anyone at home or abroad doubts the firmness of resolve, let them be prepared to pay the price for their lack of faith in Britain. Perhaps the speculators were daunted by this verbal volley, or perhaps they were again moved to let up in their assault on the pound by the prospect of a bank rate rise on Thursday. In any case, on Tuesday and Wednesday the pound though it hardly rode high in the marketplace, managed to ride a little less low than it had on the previous Friday, and to do so without the help of the Bank of England. By Thursday, according to subsequent reports, a sharp private dispute had erupted between the Bank of England and the British government on the bank rate question, Lord Cromer arguing, for the bank, that a rise of at least 1%, and perhaps 2%, was absolutely essential, and Wilson, Brown, and Callaghan still demurring. The upshot was no bank rate rise on Thursday, and the effect of the inaction was a swift intensification of the crisis. Friday the 20th was a black day in the city of London. The stock exchange, its investors moving in time with Sterling, had a terrible session. The Bank of England had by now resolved to establish its last line trench on the pound at $2.7825, a quarter of a cent above the bottom limit. The pound opened on Friday at precisely that level and remained there all day, firmly pinned down by the speculators' hail of offers to sell. Meanwhile, the bank met all offers at $2.7825 and, in doing so, used up more of Britain's reserves. Now the offers were coming so fast that little attempt was made to disguise their places of origin. It was evident that they were coming from everywhere, chiefly from the financial centres of Europe, but also from New York. And even from London itself. Rumours of imminent devaluation were sweeping the bourses of the continent. And in London itself an ominous sign of cracking morale appeared, Devaluation was now being mentioned openly even there. The Swedish economist and sociologist Gunnar Myrdal, in a luncheon speech in London on Thursday, had suggested that a slight devaluation might now be the only possible solution to Britain's problems, once this exogenous comment had broken the ice. Britons also began using the dread word, and, in the next morning's Times, our city editor himself was to say, in the tone of a commander preparing the garrison for possible surrender, indiscriminate gossip about devaluation of the pound can do harm. But it would be even worse to regard use of that word as taboo. When nightfall at last brought the pound and its defenders a weekend breather, the Bank of England had a chance to assess its situation. What it found was anything but reassuring. All but a fraction of the billion dollars it had arranged to borrow in September under the expanded swap agreements had gone into the battle. The right that remained to it of drawing on the International Monetary Fund was virtually worthless, since the transaction would take weeks to complete, and matters turned on days and hours. What the bank still had, and all that it had, was the British reserves, which had gone down by $56 million that day and now stood at around $2 billion. More than one commentator has since suggested that this sum could in a way be likened to the few squadrons of fighter planes to which the same dogged nation had been reduced 24 years earlier at the worst point in the Battle of Britain. The analogy is extravagant, and yet, in the light of what the pound means, and has meant, to the British, it is not irrelevant. In a materialistic age, the pound has almost the symbolic importance that was once accorded to the crown, the state of sterling almost is the state of Britain. The pound is the oldest of modern currencies. The term pound sterling is believed to have originated well before the Norman conquest. When the Saxon kings issued silver pennies, called sterlings or starlings because they sometimes had stars inscribed on them, of which 240 equaled one pound of pure silver. Thus, sizable payments in Britain have been reckoned in pounds from its beginnings. The pound, however, was by no means an unassailably sound currency during its first few centuries, chiefly because of the early king's unfortunate habit of relieving their chronic financial embarrassment by debasing the coinage. By melting down a quantity of sterlings, adding to the brusum base metal and no more silver, and then minting new coins, an irresponsible king could magically convert a hundred pounds into, say, a hundred and ten, just like that. Queen Elizabeth I put a stop to the practice when, in a carefully planned surprise move in 1561, she recalled from circulation all the debased coins issued by her predecessors. The result, combined with the growth of British trade, was a rapid and spectacular rise in the prestige of the pound.
and less than a century after Elizabeth's cope the word sterling had assumed the adjectival meaning that it still has. Thoroughly excellent, capable of standing every test. By the end of the 17th century, when the Bank of England was founded to handle the government's finances, paper money was beginning to be trusted for general use, and it had come to be backed by gold as well as silver. As time went on, the monetary prestige of gold rose steadily in relation to that of silver, in the modern world silver has no standing as a monetary reserve metal. And only in some half-dozen countries does it now serve as the principal metal in subsidiary coinage, but it was not until 1816 that Britain adopted a gold standard, that is, pledged itself to redeem paper currency with gold coins or bars at any time. The gold sovereign, worth one pound, which came to symbolize stability, affluence, and even joy to more Victorians than Badgett, made its first appearance in 1817. Prosperity begat emulation. Seeing how Britain flourished, and believing the gold standard to be at least partly responsible, other nations adopted it one after another, Germany in 1871, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark in 1873, France, Belgium, Switzerland, Italy, and Greece in 1874, the Netherlands in 1875, and the United States in 1879. The results were disappointing, hardly any of the newcomers found themselves immediately getting rich, and Britain, which in retrospect appears to have flourished as much in spite of the gold standard as because of it, continued to be the undisputed monarch of world trade. In the half-century preceding the First World War, London was the middleman in international finance, and the pound was its quasi-official medium. As David Lloyd George was later to write nostalgically, prior to 1914 the crackle of a bill on London, that is, of a bill of credit in pounds sterling bearing the signature of a London bank, was as good as the ring of gold in any port throughout the civilized world. The war ended this idol by disrupting the delicate balance of forces that had made it possible and by bringing to the fore a challenger to the pound's supremacy, the United States dollar. In 1914, Britain, hard-pressed to finance its fighting forces, adopted measures to discourage demands for gold, thereby abandoning the gold standard in everything but name. Meanwhile, the value of a pound in dollars sank from $4.86 to a 1920 low of $3.20. In an effort to recoup its lost glory, Britain resumed a full gold standard in 1925, tying the pound to gold at a rate that restored its old $4.86 relation to the dollar. The cost of this gallant overvaluation, however, was chronic depression at home, not to mention the political eclipse for some 15 years of the Chancellor of the Exchequer who ordered it, Winston Churchill. The general collapse of currencies during the 1930s actually began not in London but on the continent, when, in the summer of 1931, a sudden run on the leading bank of Austria, the Kreditanstalt, resulted in its failure. The domino principle of bank failures, if such a thing can be said to exist, then came into play. German losses arising from this relatively minor disaster resulted in a banking crisis in Germany, and then, because huge quantities of British funds were now frozen in bankrupt institutions on the continent, the panic crossed the English Channel and invaded the home of the imperial pound itself. Demands for gold in exchange for pounds quickly became too heavy for the Bank of England to meet, even with the help of loans from France and the United States. Britain was faced with the bleak alternatives of setting an almost usurious bank rate, between 8 and 10 percent, in order to hold funds in London and check the gold outflow, or abandoning the gold standard, the first choice, which would have further depressed the domestic economy, in which there were now more than two and a half million unemployed, was considered unconscionable, and accordingly, on September 21, 1931, the Bank of England announced suspension of its responsibility to sell gold. The move hit the financial world like a thunderbolt. So great was the prestige of the pound in 1931 that John Maynard Keynes, the already famous British economist, could say, not wholly in irony, that sterling hadn't left gold, gold had left sterling. In either case, the mooring of the old system was gone, and chaos was the result. Within a few weeks, all the countries on the vast portion of the globe then under British political or economic domination had left the gold standard. Most of the other leading currencies had either left gold or been drastically devalued in relation to it, and in the free market the value of the pound in terms of dollars had dropped from $4.86 to around $3.50. Then the dollar itself. The potential new mooring. Came loose. In 1933, the United States, compelled by the worst depression in its history, abandoned the gold standard. A year later, it resumed it in a modified form called the gold exchange standard. 
under which gold coinage was ended and the Federal Reserve was pledged to sell gold in bar form to other central banks but to no one else, and to sell it at a drastic devaluation of 41% from the old price. The United States devaluation restored the pound to its old dollar parity, but Britain found its small comfort to be tied securely to a mooring that was now shaky itself. Even so, over the next five years, while beggar my neighbor came to be the rule in international finance, the pound did not lose much more ground in relation to other currencies, and when the Second World War broke out, the British government boldly pegged it at $4.03 and imposed controls to keep it there in defiance of the free market. There, for a decade, it remained, but only officially. In the free market of neutral Switzerland, it fluctuated all through the war in reflection of Britain's military fortunes, sinking at the darkest moments to as low as $2. In the post-war era, the pound has been almost continuously in trouble. The new rules of the game of international finance that were agreed upon at Bretton Woods recognized that the old gold standard had been far too rigid and the virtual paper standard of the 1930s far too unstable. A compromise accordingly emerged, under which the dollar, the new king of currencies, remained tied to gold under the gold exchange standard, and the pound, along with the other leading currencies, became tied not to gold but to the dollar, at rates fixed within stated limits. Indeed, the post-war era was virtually ushered in by a devaluation of the pound that was about as drastic in amount as that of 1931, though far less so in its consequences. The pound, like most European currencies, had emerged from Bretton Woods flagrantly overvalued in relation to the shattered economy it represented, and had been kept that way only by government-imposed controls. In the autumn of 1949, therefore, after a year and a half of devaluation rumors, burgeoning black markets and sterling, and gold losses that had reduced the British reserves to a dangerously low level, the pound was devalued from $4.03 to $2.80. With the isolated exceptions of the United States dollar and the Swiss franc, every important non-communist currency almost instantly followed the pound's example, but this time no drying up of trade, or other chaos, ensued. Because the 1949 devaluations, unlike those of 1931 in the years following, were not the uncontrolled attempts of countries riddled by depression to gain a competitive advantage at any cost but merely represented recognition by the war-devastated countries that they had recovered to the point where they could survive relatively free international competition without artificial props. In fact, world trade, instead of drying up, picked up sharply. But even at the new, more rational evaluation the pound continued its career of hairbreadth escapes. Sterling crises of varying magnitudes were weathered in 1952. 1955, 1957, and 1961. In its unsentimental and tactless way, the pound, just as by its gyrations in the past it had accurately charted Britain's rise and fall as the greatest of world powers, now, with its nagging recurrent weakness, seemed to be hinting that even such retrenchment as the British had undertaken in 1949 was not enough to suit their reduced circumstances. And in November, 1964, these hints, with their humiliating implications, were not lost on the British people. The emotional terms in which many of them were thinking about the pound were well illustrated by an exchange that took place in that celebrated forum the letters column of the Times when the crisis was at its height. A reader named I. M. D. Little wrote deploring all the breast-beating about the pound and particularly the uneasy whispering about devaluation, a matter that he declared to be an economic rather than a moral issue. Quick as a flash came a reply from a C. S. Hadfield, among others. Was there ever a clearer sign of soulless times, Hadfield demanded, than Little's letter? Devaluation not a moral issue? Repudiation, for that is what devaluation is, neither more nor less, has become respectable. Hadfield groaned, in the unmistakable tone, as old in Britain as the pound itself, of the outraged patriot. In the ten days following the Basel meeting, the first concern of the men at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York was not the pound but the dollar. The American balance of payments deficit had now crept up to the alarming rate of almost $6 billion a year, and it was becoming clear that a rise in the British bank rate, if it should be unmatched by American action, might merely shift some of the speculative attack from the pound to the dollar. Hayes and Coombs and the Washington Monetary Authorities, William McChesney Martin, Chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, Secretary of the Treasury Douglas Stillen, and Undersecretary of the Treasury Robert Rusa, came to agree that if the British should raise the rate the Federal Reserve would be compelled, in self-defense, to competitively raise its rate above the current level of 3.5%. Hayes had numerous telephone conversations on this delicate point with his London counterpart, Lord Cromer. A deep-dyed aristocrat, 
a godson of King George V and a grandson of Sir Evelyn Baring, later the first Earl of Cromer, who, as the British agent in Egypt, was Chinese Gordon's nemesis in 1884-85. Lord Cromer was also a banker of universally acknowledged brilliance and, at 43, the youngest man, as far as anyone could remember, ever to direct the fortunes of the Bank of England, he and Hayes, in the course of their frequent meetings at Basel and elsewhere, had become warm friends. During the afternoon of Friday the 20th, at any rate, the Federal Reserve Bank had a chance to show its good intentions by doing some frontline fighting for the pound. The breather provided by the London closing proved to be illusory, 5 o'clock in London was only noon in New York, and insatiable speculators were able to go on selling pounds for several more hours in the New York market. With the result that the trading room of the Federal Reserve Bank temporarily replaced that of the Bank of England as the command post for the defense. Using as their ammunition British dollars. Or, more precisely, United States dollars lent to Britain under the swap agreements, the Federal Reserve's traders staunchly held the pound at or above $2. 7825 at ever-increasing cost, of course, to the British reserves. Mercifully, after the New York closing the battle did not follow the sun to San Francisco and on around the world to Tokyo. Evidently, the attackers had had their fill, at least for the time being. What followed was one of those strange modern weekends in which weighty matters are discussed and weighty decisions taken among men who are ostensibly sitting around relaxing in various parts of the world. Wilson, Brown, and Callahan were at Checkers, the Prime Minister's country estate, taking part in a conference that had originally been scheduled to cover the subject of national defense policy. Lord Cromer was at his country place in Westerham, Kent. Martin, Dillon, and Rusa were at their offices or their homes, in and around Washington. Coombs was at his home, in Green Village, New Jersey, and Hayes was visiting friends of his elsewhere in New Jersey. At Checkers, Wilson and his two financial ministers, leaving the military brass to confer about defense policy with each other, adjourned to an upstairs gallery to tackle the Sterling crisis, in order to bring Lord Cromer into their deliberations. They kept a telephone circuit open to him in Kent, using a scrambler system when they talked on it, so as to avoid interception of their words by their unseen enemies the speculators. Sometime on Saturday, the British reached their decision. Not only would they raise the bank rate, and raise it 2% above its current level, to 7%, but, in defiance of custom, they would do so the first thing Monday morning, rather than wait for another Thursday to roll around. For one thing, they reason, to postpone action until Thursday would mean three and a half more business days during which the deadly drain of British reserves would almost certainly continue and might well accelerate, for another. The sheer shock of the deliberate violation of custom would serve to dramatize the government's determination. The decision, once taken, was communicated by British intermediaries in Washington to the American monetary officials there, and relayed to Hayes and Coombs in New Jersey. Those two, knowing that the agreed-upon plan for a concomitant rise in the New York bank rate would now have to be put into effect as quickly as possible, got to work on the telephone lining up a Monday afternoon meeting of the Federal Reserve Bank's Board of Directors, without whose initiative the rate could not be changed. Hayes, a man who sets great store by politeness, has since said, with considerable chagrin, that he fears he was the despair of his hostess that weekend. Not only was he on the telephone most of the time but he was prevented by the circumstances from giving the slightest explanation of his unseemly behavior. What had been done, or, rather, was about to be done, in Britain was plenty to flutter the dovecoats of international finance. Since the beginning of the First World War, the bank rate there had never gone higher than 7% and had only occasionally gone that high, as for a bank rate change on a day other than Thursday, the last time that had occurred. Ominously enough, was in 1931. Anticipating lively action at the London opening, which would take place at about 5 a.m. New York time, Coombs went to Liberty Street on Sunday afternoon in order to spend the night at the bank and be on hand when the transatlantic doings began. As an overnight companion he had a man who found it advisable to sleep at the bank so often that he habitually kept a packed suitcase in his office. Thomas J. Roche, at that time the senior foreign exchange officer. Roche welcomed his boss to the sleeping quarters, a row of small, motel-like rooms on the 11th floor, each equipped with maple furniture, old New York prints, a telephone a clock radio, a bathrobe, and a shaving kit, and the two men discussed the weekend's developments for a while before turning in. Shortly before five in the morning, their radios woke them, and, after a breakfast provided by the night staff, they repaired to the foreign exchange trading room, on the seventh floor, to man their fluoroscope. At 5.10, they were on the phone to the Bank of England, getting the news. 
The bank rate rise had been announced promptly at the opening of the London markets, to the accompaniment of great excitement. Later Coombs was to learn that the government broker's entrance into the stock exchange, which is usually the occasion for a certain hush, had this time been greeted with such an uproar that he had a difficulty making his news known. As for the first market reaction of the pound, it was like that of a racehorse to dope, in the 10 minutes following the bank rate announcement it shot up to $2.7869, far above its Friday closing. A few minutes later, the early rising New Yorkers were on the phone to the Deutsche Bundesbank, the Central Bank of West Germany, in Frankfurt, and the Swiss National Bank, in Zurich, sounding out continental reaction. It was equally good. Then they were back in touch with the Bank of England, where things were looking better and better. The speculators against the pound were on the run, rushing now to cover their short sales, and by the time the first grey light began to show in the windows on Liberty Street, Coombs had heard that the pound was being quoted in London at $2.79, its best price since July, when the crisis started. It went on that way all day. 7% will drag money from the moon, a Swiss banker commented, paraphrasing the great Badgett, who had said, in his earthbound, Victorian way, 7% will pull gold out of the ground. In London, the sense of security was so strong that it allowed a return to political bickering as usual. In Parliament, Reginald Modling, the chief economic authority of the out-of-office Conservatives, took the occasion to remark that there wouldn't have been a crisis in the first place but for the actions of the Labour government, and Chancellor of the Exchequer Callaghan replied, with deadly politeness. I must remind the honourable gentleman that he told us we had inherited his problems. Everybody was clearly breathing easier. As for the Bank of England, so great was the sudden clamour for pounds that it saw a chance to replenish its depleted supply of dollars, and for a time that afternoon it actually felt confident enough to switch sides in the market. Buying dollars with pounds at just below $2.79. In New York, the mood persisted after the London closing. It was with a clear conscience about the pound that the directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York could, and, that afternoon, did, carry out their plan to raise their lending rate from 3.5% to 4%. Coombs has since said, the feeling here on Monday afternoon was, they've done it, they've pulled through again. There was a general sigh of relief. The sterling crisis seemed to be over. It wasn't, though. I remember that the situation changed very fast on Tuesday the 24th. Hayes has said, that day's opening found the pound looking firm at $2.7875. Substantial buying orders for pounds were coming in now from Germany, and the day ahead looked satisfactory. So things continued until 6 a.m. in New York, noon on the continent. It is around then that the various bourses of Europe, including the most important ones, in Paris and Frankfurt, hold the meetings at which they set the day's rate for each currency. For the purpose of settling transactions in stocks and bonds that involve foreign currency, and these price-fixing sessions are bound to influence the money markets. Since they give a clear indication of the most influential continental sentiment in regard to each currency. The bourse rates set for the pound that day were such as to show a renewed, and pronounced, lack of confidence. At the same time, it appeared subsequently, money dealers everywhere, and particularly in Europe, were having second thoughts about the manner of the bank rate rise the previous day. At first, taken by surprise, they had reacted enthusiastically, but now, it seemed, they had belatedly decided that the making of the announcement on Monday indicated that Britain was losing its grip. What would it connote if the British were to play a cup final on Sunday? A European banker is said to have asked a colleague. The only possible answer was that it would connote panic in Albion. The effect of these second thoughts was an astonishingly drastic turnabout in market action. In New York between 8 and 9, Coombs, in the trading room, watched with a sinking heart as a tranquil pound market collapsed into a rout. Selling orders in unheard of quantities were coming from everywhere. The Bank of England, with the courage of desperation, advanced its last line trench from 2.7825 to $2.7860, and, by constant intervention, held the pound there. But it was clear that the cost would soon become too high, a few minutes after 9 a.m. New York time, Coombs calculated that Britain was losing reserves at the unprecedented, and unsupportable, rate of a million dollars a minute. Hayes, arriving at the bank shortly after 9, had hardly sat down at his desk before this unsettling news reached him from the seventh floor. We're in for a hurricane. Coombs told him, and went on to say that the pressure on sterling was now mounting so fast that there was a real likelihood that Britain might be forced either to devalue or to impose a sweeping, and, for many reasons, unacceptable, system of exchange controls before the week was out. Hayes immediately telephoned the governors of the leading European central banks, some of whom, 
because not all the national markets had yet felt the full weight of the crisis. We're startled to hear exactly how grave the situation was, and pleaded with them not to exacerbate the pressure on both the pound and the dollar by raising their own bank rates. Then he asked Coombs to come up to his office. The pound, the two men agreed, now had its back to the wall. The British bank rate rise had obviously failed of its purpose, and at the million a minute rate of loss Britain's well of reserves would be dry in less than five business days. The one hope now lay in amassing, within a matter of hours, or within a day or so at the most, a huge bundle of credit from outside Britain to enable the Bank of England to survive the attack and beat it back. Such rescue bundles had been assembled just a handful of times before, for Canada in 1962, for Italy earlier in 1964, and for Britain in 1961 but this time, it was clear, a much bigger bundle than any of those would be needed. The central banking world was faced not so much with an opportunity for building a milestone in the short history of international monetary cooperation as with a necessity for doing so. Two other things were clear, that, in view of the dollar's troubles, the United States could not hope to rescue the pound unassisted, and that, the dollar's troubles notwithstanding, the United States, with all its economic might, would have to join the Bank of England in initiating any rescue operation. As a first step, Coombs suggested that the Federal Reserve standby credit to the Bank of England ought to be increased forthwith from $500 million to $750 million. Unfortunately, fast action on this proposal was hampered by the fact that, under the Federal Reserve Act, any such move could be made only by decision of a Federal Reserve System Committee, whose members were scattered all over the country. Hayes conferred by long-distance telephone with the Washington Monetary Contingent, Martin, Dillon, and Rusa, none of whom disagreed with Coombs' view of what had to be done, and as a result of these discussions a call went out from Martin's office to members of the key committee, called the Open Market Committee, for a meeting by telephone at 3 o'clock that afternoon. Rusa, at the Treasury, suggested that the United States' contribution to the kitty could be further increased by arranging for a $250 million loan from the Export-Import Bank a treasury-owned and treasury-financed institution in Washington. Hayes and Coombs were naturally in favor of this, and Russo set in motion the bureaucratic machinery to unlock that particular vault, a process that, he warned, would certainly take until evening. As the early afternoon passed in New York, with the millions of dollars continuing to drain, minute by minute, from Britain's reserves, Hayes and Coombs, along with their Washington colleagues, were busy planning the next step. If the swap increase and the export-import bank loan should come through, the United States credits would amount to a billion dollars all told, now, in consultation with the beleaguered garrison at the Bank of England. The Federal Reserve Bank men began to believe that, in order to make the operation effective, the other leading central banks, spoken of in central banking shorthand as the continent, even though they include the banks of Canada and Japan, would have to be asked to put up additional credits on the order of one and a half billion dollars, or possibly even more. Such a sum would make the continent, collectively, a bigger contributor to the cause than the United States, a fact that Hayes and Coombs realized might not sit too well with the continental bankers and their governments. At 3 o'clock, the Open Market Committee held its telephone meeting, 12 men sitting at their desks in six cities, from New York to San Francisco. The members heard Coombs' dry, unemotional voice describing the situation and making his recommendation. They were quickly convinced. In no more than 15 minutes, they had voted unanimously to increase the swap credit to $750 million, on condition that proportional credit assistance could be obtained from other central banks. By late afternoon, tentative word had come from Washington that prospects for the export-import bank loan looked good, and that more definite word could be expected before midnight. So the $1 billion in United States credits appeared to be virtually in the bag. It remained to tackle the continent. It was night now in Europe, so nobody there could be tackled, the zero hour, then was continental opening time the next day, and the crucial period for the fate of the pound would be the few hours after that. Hayes, after leaving instructions for a bank car to pick him up at his home, in New Canaan, Connecticut, at 4 o'clock in the morning, took his usual commuting train from Grand Central shortly after 5. He has since expressed a certain regret that he proceeded in such a routine way at such a dramatic moment. I left the bank rather reluctantly, he says. In retrospect, I guess I wish I hadn't. I don't mean as a practical matter, I was just as useful at home, and, as a matter of fact, I ended up spending most of the evening on the phone with Charlie Coombs, who stayed at the bank, but just because something like that doesn't happen every day in a banker's life. I'm a creature of habit, I guess. Besides, it's something of a tenet of mine to insist on keeping a proper balance between private and professional life. Although Hayes does not say so, 
he may have been thinking of something else, too. It can safely be said to be something of a tenet of central bank presidents or governors not to sleep at their places of business. If word were ever to get out that the methodical Hayes was doing so at a time like this, he may have reason, it might well be considered just as much a sign of panic as a British bank rate rise on a Monday. Meanwhile, Coombs was making another night of it on Liberty Street, he had gone home the previous night because the worst had momentarily appeared to be over, but now he stayed on after regular work hours with Roche, who hadn't been home since the previous weekend. Dort. Midnight, Coombs received confirmation of the Export-Import Bank's $250 million credit, which had arrived from Washington during the evening, as promised. So now everything was braced for the morning's effort. Coombs again installed himself in one of the uninspiring 11th-floor cubicles, and, after a final marshalling of the facts that would be needed for the job of persuading the Continental bankers, set his clock radio for 3.30 and went to bed. A Federal Reserve man with a literary bent and a romantic temperament was later moved to draw a parallel between the Federal Reserve Bank that night and the British camp on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt in Shakespeare's version, in which King Henry mused so eloquently on how participation in the coming action would serve to ennoble even the vilest of the troops, and how gentlemen safe in bed at home would later think themselves accursed that they had not been at the battle scene. Coombs, a practical man, had no such high-flown opinion of his situation, even so, as he dozed fitfully, waiting for morning to reach Europe. He was well aware that the events he was taking part in were like nothing that had ever happened in banking before. 2. So that evening, Tuesday November 24, 1964, Hayes arrived at his home, in New Canaan, Connecticut, at about 6.30, exactly as usual, having inexorably taken his usual 5.09 from Grand Central. Hayes was a tall, slim, soft-spoken man of 54 with keen eyes framed by owlish round spectacles, with a slightly schoolmasterish air and a reputation for unflappability. By so methodically going through familiar motions at such a time, he realized with amusement, he must seem to his colleagues to be living up to his reputation rather spectacularly. At his house, a former caretaker's cottage of circa 1840 that the Hayeses had bought and remodeled 12 years earlier, he was greeted, as usual, by his wife, a pretty and vivacious woman of Anglo-Italian descent named Vilma but always called Beba, who loves to travel, has almost no interest in banking, and is the daughter of the late Metropolitan Opera baritone Thomas Chalmers. Since at that time of year it was completely dark when Hayes got home, he decided to forego a favorite early evening unwinding activity of his. Walking to the top of a grassy slope beside the house which commands a fine view across the Sound to Long Island. Anyway, he was not really in a mood to unwind, instead, he felt keyed up, and decided he might as well stay that way overnight, since the car from the bank was scheduled to call at his door so early the next morning to take him to work. During dinner, Hayes and his wife discussed subjects like the fact that their son, Tom, who was a senior at Harvard, would be arriving home the following day for his Thanksgiving recess. Afterward, Hayes settled down in an armchair to read for a while. In banking circles, he is thought of as a scholarly, intellectual type, and, indeed, he is scholarly and intellectual in comparison with most bankers, even so, his extra banking reading tends to be not constant and all-embracing, as his wife's is, but sporadic, capricious, and intensive, everything about Napoleon for a while, perhaps, then a dry period, then a binge on, say, the Civil War. Just then, he was concentrating on the island of Corfu, where he and Mrs. Hayes were planning to spend some time. But before he had got very far into his latest Corfu book he was called to the telephone. The call was from the bank. There were new developments, which Coombs thought President Hayes ought to be kept abreast of. To recapitulate in brief, drastic action to save the pound, which the Federal Reserve Bank not only would be intimately involved in but would actually join in initiating, was going to be taken by the government banks, or central banks, as they are more commonly called, of the non-communist world's leading nations as soon as possible after the next morning's opening of the London and Continental financial markets, which would occur between 4 and 5 a. M. New York Time. Britain was face to face with bankruptcy, the reasons being that a huge deficit in its international accounts over the previous months had resulted in concomitant losses in the gold and dollar reserves held by the Bank of England. That worldwide fear lest the newly elected Labour government decide, or be forced, to ease the situation by devaluing the pound from its dollar parity of about $2.80 to some substantially lower figure had caused a flood of selling of pounds by hedgers and speculators in the international money markets, that the Bank of England, fulfilling an international obligation to sustain the pound at a free market price no lower than $2.78, 
had been losing millions of dollars a day from its reserves, which now stood at about $2 billion, their lowest point in many years. The remaining hope lay in amassing, in a matter of hours before it would be too late, an unheard of sum in short-term dollar credits to Britain from the central banks of the world's rich nations. With such credits at its disposal, the Bank of England would presumably be able to buy up pounds so aggressively that the speculative attack could be absorbed, contained, and finally beaten back. Giving Britain time to set its economic affairs in order. Just what the sum necessary for rescue should be was an open question, but earlier that day the monetary authorities of the United States and Britain had concluded that it would have to be at least $2 billion, and perhaps even more. The United States, through the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the Treasury-owned Export-Import Bank, in Washington, had that day committed itself to $1 billion. The task that remained was to persuade the other leading central banks, habitually spoken of in the central banking world as the continent. Even though they include the banks of Canada and Japan, to lend more than a billion in addition. Nothing of the kind had ever been asked of the continent before, through the swap network or any other way. In September, 1964, the continent had come through with its biggest collective emergency credit so far, half a billion dollars to the Bank of England for use in defending the pound, already embattled then. Now, with this half-billion loan still outstanding and the pound in far worse straits, the continent was about to be called upon for more than twice that sum, perhaps five times that sum. Obviously, the spirit of cooperation, if not the quality of mercy, was about to be strained. So Hayes. Musings that evening may well have run. With such portentous matters churning around in his head, Hayes found it hard to keep his mind on Corfu. Besides, the prospect of the bank car's arrival at four o'clock made him feel that he should go to bed early. As he prepared to do so, Mrs. Hayes commented that since he would have to get up in the middle of the night, she supposed she ought to feel sorry for him but since he was obviously looking forward with keen anticipation to whatever it was that would get him up at that hour. She envied him instead. Down on Liberty Street, Coombe slept fitfully until he was awakened by the clock radio in his room at about 3.30 New York time, that is to say, 8.30 London time and 9.30 farther east on the European continent. A series of foreign exchange crises involving Europe had so accustomed him to the time differential that he was inclined to think in terms of the European day, referring casually to 8 a.m. in New York as lunchtime, and 9 a.m. as mid-afternoon. So when he got up it was, in his terms, morning, despite the stars that were shining over Liberty Street. Coombs got dressed, went to his office, on the 10th floor, where he had some breakfast provided by the bank's regular night kitchen staff and began placing telephone calls to the various leading central banks of the non-communist world. All the calls were put through by one telephone operator, who handles the Federal Reserve Bank's switchboard during off-hours, and all of them were eligible for a special government emergency priority that the bank's officers are entitled to claim, but on this occasion it did not have to be used. Because at 4.15, when Coombs began his telephoning, the transatlantic circuits were almost entirely clear. The calls were made essentially to lay the groundwork for what was to come. The morning news from the Bank of England, obtained in one of the first calls from Liberty Street, was that conditions were unchanged from the previous day, the speculative attack on the pound was continuing unabated, and the Bank of England was sustaining the pound's price at $2.7860 by throwing still more of its reserves on the market. Coombs had reason to believe that when the New York foreign exchange market opened, some five hours later, Vast additional quantities of pounds would be thrown on the market on this side of the Atlantic. And more British dollars and gold would have to be spent. He conveyed this alarming intelligence to his counterparts at such institutions as the Deutsche Bundesbank, in Frankfurt, the Banque de France, in Paris, the Banca d'Italia, in Rome, and the Bank of Japan, in Tokyo. In the last case, the officers had to be reached at their homes, for the 14-hour time difference made it already past 6 p.m. in the Orient. Then. Coming to the crux of the matter, Coombs informed the representatives of the various banks that they were soon to be asked, in behalf of the Bank of England, for a loan far bigger than any they had ever been asked for before. Without going into specific figures, I tried to make the point that it was a crisis of the first magnitude, which many of them still didn't realize, Coombs has said. An officer of the Bundesbank, who knew as much about the extent of the crisis as anyone outside London Washington, and New York, has said that in Frankfurt they were mentally prepared or braced might be a better word, for the huge touch that was about to be put on them. But that right up to the time of Coombs' call they had been hoping the speculative attack on the pound would subside of its own accord, and even after the call they had no idea how much they might be asked for. In any event, as soon as Coombs was off the wire the Bundesbank's governor called a board of managers meeting, and, 
As things turned out, the meeting was to remain in session all day long. Still, all this was preparatory. Actual requests, in specific amounts, had to be made by the head of one central bank of the head of another. At the time Coombs was making his softening up calls, the head of the Federal Reserve Bank was in the bank's limousine, somewhere between New Canaan and Liberty Street, and the bank's limousine. In flagrant nonconformity with the James Bond style of high-level international dealings, was not equipped with a telephone. Hayes, the man being awaited, had been president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for a little over eight years, having been chosen for the job, to his own and almost everyone else's bewilderment. Not from some position of comparable eminence or from the Federal Reserve's own ranks but from among the swarming legions of New York commercial bank vice presidents. Unorthodox as the appointment seemed at the time, in retrospect it seems providential. A study of Hayes' early life and youthful career gives the impression that everything was somehow intended to prepare him for dealing with this sort of international monetary crisis. Just as the life of a writer or a painter sometimes seems to have consisted primarily of preparation for the execution of a single work of art. If divine providence, or perhaps its financial department, when the huge sterling crisis was imminent, had needed an assessment of Hayes' qualifications for coping with this task and had hired the celestial equivalent of an executive recruiter to report on him, the dossier might have read something like this. Born in Ithaca, New York. On July 4, 1910, grew up mostly in New York City. Father a professor. Of constitutional law at Cornell, later a Manhattan investment counselor, mother a former schoolteacher, enthusiastic suffragette, settlement house worker, and political liberal. Both parents birdwatchers. Family atmosphere intellectual, free-thinking, and public-spirited. Attended private schools in New York City and Massachusetts and was usually his school's top-ranking student. Then went to Harvard and Yale. Studied at New College, Oxford, as Rhodes Scholar 1931-33, there became firm Anglophile, and wrote thesis on Federal Reserve Policy and the Working of the Gold Standard in the years 1923-30. Although he had no thought of ever joining the Federal Reserve. Wishes now he had the thesis, in case it contains blinding youthful illuminations, but neither he nor New College can find it. Entered New York Commercial Banking in 1933, and rose slowly but steadily. Attained title of Assistant Secretary at New York Trust Company in 1942, after a Navy stint. In 1947 became an Assistant Vice President and two years later head of New York Trust's Foreign Department despite total lack of previous experience in foreign banking. Apparently learned fast astounded his colleagues and superiors, and gained reputation among them as foreign exchange wizard by predicting precise amount of 1949 pound devaluation a few weeks before it occurred. Was appointed president of Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 1956, to his utter astonishment and that of New York banking community, most of which had never heard of this rather shy man. Reacted calmly by taking his family on a two-month vacation in Europe. The consensus now is that Federal Reserve Bank's directors had almost implausible prescience, or luck. In picking a foreign exchange expert just when the dollar was weakening and international monetary cooperation becoming crucially important. Is liked by European central bankers, who call him Al. Earns $75,000 a year, making him the second highest paid federal official after the President of the United States. Federal Reserve Bank salaries being intended to be more or less competitive in banking terms rather than in government employee terms. Is very tall and very thin tries to observe regular commuting hours and keep his private life sacrosanct, as a matter of principle, considers regular evening work at an office. Outrageous. Complains that his son has a low opinion of business, attributes this to reverse snobbery, but even then remains calm. Conclusion, this is the very man for the job of representing the United States Central Bank in a sterling crisis. And, indeed, Hayes readily fits the picture of a perfectly planned and perfectly tooled piece of machinery to perform a certain complex task, but there are other sides to him, and his character contains as many paradoxes as the next man's. Although hardly anyone in banking ever tries to describe Hayes without using the word scholarly and intellectual, Hayes tends to think of himself as an indifferent scholar and intellectual but an effective man of action. And on the latter score the events of November 25, 1964, seem to bear him out. Although in some ways he is the complete banker, in conformity with H. G. Wells' notion of such a banker, he seems to take money for granted as a terrier takes rats, and to be devoid of philosophical curiosity about it, he has a distinctly unbanker-like philosophical curiosity about almost everything else. And although casual acquaintances sometimes pronounce him dull,
His close friends speak of a rare capacity for enjoyment and an inner serenity that seem to make him immune to the tensions and distractions that fragment the lives of so many of his contemporaries. Doubtless the inner serenity was put to a severe test as Hayes rode in the bank car toward Liberty Street. When he arrived at his desk at about 5.30, Hayes' first act was to punch Coombs' button on his inner office phone and get the Foreign Department Chief's latest appraisal of the situation. He learned that, as he had expected, the Bank of England's sickening dollar drain was continuing unabated. Worse than that, though, Coombs said his contacts with local bankers who were also on emergency early morning vigil indicated that overnight there had accumulated a fantastic pile of orders to unload pounds on the New York market as soon as it opened. The Bank of England, already almost inundated, could expect a new tidal wave from New York to hit in four hours. The need for haste thus became even more urgent. Hayes and Coombs agreed that the project of putting together an international package of credits to Britain should be announced as soon as possible after the New York opening, perhaps as early as 10 o'clock. So that the bank would have a single center for all its foreign communications, Hayes decided to forsake his own office, a spacious one with paneled walls and comfortable chairs grouped around a fireplace. And let Coombs' quarters, down the hall. Which were much smaller and more austere but more efficiently arranged, serve as the command post. Once there. He picked up one of three telephones and asked the operator to get him Lord Cromer, at the Bank of England. When the connection was made, the two men, the key figures in the proposed rescue operation, reviewed their plans a final time, checking the sums they had tentatively decided to ask of each central bank and agreeing on who would call whom first. In the eyes of some people, Hayes and Lord Cromer make an oddly assorted pair. Besides being a deep-dyed aristocrat, George Rowland Stanley Baring, 3rd Earl of Cromer, is a deep-dyed banker. A scion of the famous London Merchant Bank of Baring Brothers, the third Earl and godson of a monarch went to Eton and Trinity College, Cambridge, and spent 12 years as a managing director of his family's bank and then two years, from 1959 to 1961, as Britain's economic minister and chief representative of his country's treasury in Washington. If Hayes had acquired his mastery of the arcana of international banking by patient study, Lord Cromer, who is no scholar, acquired his by heredity, instinct, or osmosis. If Hayes, despite his unusual physical stature, could easily be overlooked in a crowd, Lord Cromer, who is of average height but debonair and dashing, would cut a figure anywhere. If Hayes is inclined to be a bit hesitant about casual intimacies, Lord Cromer is known for his hearty manner. And has, doubtless unintentionally, both flattered and obscurely disappointed many American bankers who have been awed by his title by quickly encouraging them to call him Rowley. Rowley is very self-confident and decisive, an American banker has said. He's never afraid to barge in, because he's convinced of the reasonableness of his own position. But then he's a reasonable man. He's the kind of man who in a crisis would be able to grab the telephone and do something about it. This banker confesses that until November 25, 1964, he had not thought Hayes was that kind of man. Beginning at about 6 o'clock that morning, Hayes did grab the phone, right along with Lord Cromer. One after another, the leading central bankers of the world, among them President Carl Blessing, of the Deutsche Bundesbank, Dr. Guido Carli, of the Bank of Italy, Governor Jacques Brunet, of the Bank of France, Dr. Walter Schwegler, of the Swiss National Bank, and Governor Per. Osbrink, of the Swedish Riksbank, picked up their phones and discovered, some of them with considerable surprise. The degree of gravity that the sterling crisis had reached in the past day, the fact that the United States had committed itself to a short-term loan of $1 billion, and that they were being asked to dig deep into their own nation's reserves to help tide Sterling over. Some first heard all this from Hayes, some from Lord Cromer, in either case, they heard it not from a casual or official acquaintance but from a fellow member of that esoteric fraternity the Basel Club. Hayes, whose position as representative of the one country that had already pledged a huge sum cast him almost automatically as the leader of the operation was careful to make it clear in each of his calls that his part in the proceedings was to put the weight of the Federal Reserve behind a request that formally came from the Bank of England. The pound situation is critical, and I understand the Bank of England is requesting a credit line of $250 million from you, he would say, in his calm way, to one continental central bank governor or another. I'm sure you understand that this is a situation where we all have to stand together. He and Coombs always spoke English, of course despite the fact that he had recently been taking French refresher lessons, and that at Yale he made one of the most impressive academic records in memory. Hayes doggedly remained a dove at languages and still did not trust himself to carry on an important business conversation in anything but English. 
In those cases in which he was on particularly close terms with his continental counterpart, he spoke more informally, using a central banker's jargon in which the conventional numerical unit is a million dollars. Hayes would say smoothly in such cases, do you think you can come in for, say, 150? Regardless of the degree of formality of the approach Hayes made, the first response, he says, was generally caginess, not unmixed with shock. Is it really as bad as all that, Al? We were still hoping that the pound would recover on its own is the kind of thing he recalls having heard several times. When Hayes assured them that it was indeed as bad as all that, and that the pound would certainly not recover on its own, the usual response was something like we'll have to see what we can do and then call you back. Some of the continental central bankers have said that what impressed them most about Hayes' first call was not so much what he said as when he said it. Realizing that it was still well before dawn in New York, and knowing Hayes' addiction to what are commonly thought of as bankers' hours, these Europeans perceived that things must be grave the moment they heard his voice. As soon as Hayes had broken the ice at each continental bank, Coombs would take over and get down to details with his counterparts. The first round of calls left Hayes, Lord Cromer, and their associates.